0: And we're going to have a great time, and already are, and going to continue uh, having a great time in his presence today. Well, the book of Proverbs, chapter number 18, and verse number 24. The wisdom writer says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. If you don't have any friends, hmm. Enough said. If you're going to have friends, the wisdom writer said, you must yourself be friendly. And there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A lot of people uh, say this is referring to Christ. I personally do not believe it's referring to Christ. Sure, Christ is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That goes without saying, but the text is about friends. And I believe that we can actually have a friend and develop a relationship uh, with a friend that will be even closer than the relationship that we have with our own blood brothers. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. This morning I'm talking to you about why I need a friend. Why I need a friend. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity of being able to uh, deliver the word of the Lord this morning, Father. And thank you for your anointing that that enables and empowers us, Lord, to uh, minister effectively the word of God. Lord, let your anointing be strong in this house. Lord, let us open our ears to hear the word today. May we make application of the word of the Lord that we receive today for the glory of the Lord. All of God's people said, praise the Lord. Praise you may be reseated this morning. Well, for the past couple of Sundays, we have been talking about relationships. In Genesis chapter number 2 and verse 18, God said that it is not good for man to be alone. You see, uh, man doesn't do very well by himself. Last Sunday, I gave you five tendencies of isolated people. Five tendencies of isolated people. People who isolate themselves tend to do these five things. And these five tendencies can be found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter number 19. Where the prophet Elijah isolated himself. So let's just do a quick review this morning. Get everybody on the same page and up to date. And for those of us that were here, a reminder of what we said last Sunday. Well, we said five things that isolated people tend to do. Number one, they tend to exclude other people. Isolated people. People that... Isolate themselves. That get by themselves. That that uh, uh, that, that get all stay uh, most of their time by themselves alone. They seem seem to uh, and tend to exclude other people. If you read that account you'll find that Elijah would not allow his servant to go with him into the wilderness. He took his servant with him as far as Beersheba but he left his servant in Beersheba and then he by himself and alone went into the wilderness. We talked about why that he did that last Sunday. Isolated people seem to throw up an imaginary wall around themselves and won't allow anyone to get too close to them. They say this is as far as you go. This is as close as I'm going to allow you to get to me. Another tendency of isolated people is they tend to exaggerate, exaggerate their problems. Isolated people will see mountains when actually it's only a molehill. They can see a problem in every solution. Third thing about uh, isolated people, they tend to extend an accusing finger. They blame anyone and everybody but themselves for their problems. The fourth thing they tend to do, they tend to exasperate people. Those that are around them see the situation and they see the situation as it really is. And because they see it as it really is, they want to shake the person in isolation and say, Hey, things aren't nearly as bleak as you make them out to be. Not saying that you don't have a problem, not saying you're not going through a difficulty, but hey, it's not nearly as bad as you seem to think it is and as you see it. The fifth thing that isolated people do, they, they tend to excuse themselves. They tend to excuse themselves. Oh, they tend to give themselves a get out of jail free card. <laughs> oh, they may own up to their mistake. They, they may own up to their lack of effort, but they always have an excuse. God said, it's not good that man be alone. God knew that man wouldn't fare very well by himself. And so God made other people so man would have someone to share his life with. Last Sunday, we began talking about why I need a friend or why I need to develop a relationship with someone else. I started making an acrostic with the word friend, an acrostic with the word friend. And as we make this acrostic today, we're going to discover six reasons why we need a friend. Now, last Sunday, we only had time to talk about the first letter. And for the letter F in the acrostic of the word friend, I said, I need a friend to fellowship. I need a friend to fellowship with me. All of us need somebody to talk to. All of us need someone to share our life with. We need someone to share the highs and the lows. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, Rejoice with those that are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. Did you know that relationships are so important that they even play a part in a person's health? Researchers have, have proven that extreme isolation is actually hazardous to your health research has proven that an isolated person in good health is 3 times more likely to die prematurely than a person with bad health habits like smoking and drinking and obesity but has good relationships did you hear me research has said and proven that an isolated person, even though they may be in excellent health, yet they are three times more likely to die prematurely than a person that, will, that, that has bad habits like smoking and drinking or obesity, and yet they have good relationships. In other words, it's better to eat Krispy Kreme donuts with a friend than to eat celery all by yourself. Talking about why I need a friend. For the F in our acrostic, I need a friend to fellowship with me. For the letter R, I need a friend to reprimand me. I need a friend to reprimand me. Proverbs 27 and 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Somebody said a true friend is one who stabs you in the front. Your enemies talk behind your back, but a true friend is willing to confront you on an issue if it's for your good. Now let me quickly say this morning that a friend that rebukes you will do it with love. They will do it with gentleness. They will do it with a kind and a right spirit and attitude. I have a good friend in ministry. I have a lot of good friends in ministry, but I'm thinking of one right now. And one day we were talking, and he asked me about something that he had said in a public minister's meeting. He was being criticized for his remarks, and he asked me my opinion of the incident because he knew that I was in that meeting. And he asked for my take on that. And very kindly I said to him, and I called him by name, and I said, What you said was good. How you said it wasn't good. He hung his head and agreed with me. Proverbs 17 and 17 says that a friend loves at all times. Sometimes a friend must love you enough to tell you the truth so that you might become a better person. Paul said in Ephesians 4 and 15 to speak the truth... In love. A lot of people have part of that down. Oh, they know how to tell you the truth, man. They don't mind at all. In fact, they love it. Paul said, do it in love. Sometimes I need a friend to reprimand me. Someone to point out something in my life that's not quite right. Something that may be going on in my life that may be leading me down a wrong path. You see, if all we have around us is yes-men, if no one is allowed to warn us, if no one is allowed to caution us about a wrong direction or move that we might be taking or a bad attitude that we might be developing in our life, sometimes friends must practice tough love. They must love us enough to stab us in the front. Let me caution you this morning, only very close friends and get away with this. We're talking about why I need a friend. I don't know about you, but I need people in my life. I need relationships. I need friends. I am grateful and thankful to God that I have a lot of really good friends. I want you to have some incredible relationships as well. For the I in our acrostic, I need a friend to improve me. I need a friend to improve me. Proverbs 27 and 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. You see, relationships improve us. Or maybe I ought to say good relationships. (laughs) Because some relationships drag us down. Because we are influenced by our relationships. That's why it's very, very important who we allow into our life. And and we love everybody. Amen. We love everybody, but not everybody is allowed in our inner circle. Mm -hmm. Jesus had 12, but he had three. Amen. He loved the world, but he had 12, and then he had three. I'm a better person because of my relationships. I can learn much by observing those who are closest to me. And there are at least two ways that my friends improve me. Number one, they they can improve me by their example. They improve me by their example. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul writes, Dear brothers and sisters, sisters, pattern your life after mine. I just did that to keep you awake. <laughs> Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your life after mine and learn from those who follow our example. You see, by paying close attention to my friends, I can can learn much from their example that will help me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, I am so glad that you are always, that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teaching I passed on to you. Another way that my friends improve me is by their experience. Proverbs 13 and 20 says, and this is one of my life verses, walk with the wise and you'll become wise. You need to write that down. You need that underlined in your Bible. It's one of my life verses, Proverbs 13 and 20, walk with the wise and become wise. Let me talk to the younger people that are here this morning. If all of your friends are your age or younger, if if all, if the only people that you choose to hang out with are people your age or, or younger, you're making a mistake. Now, younger people might be cool. And I know we older folks aren't cool anymore. And the more we try to look cool, the more nerdy we look. We older we get. <laughs> Younger people might be cool, but wisdom comes from the elders. Wisdom comes through experience. You know, most of you that that I began pastoring at the age of 17, I don't recommend that to anyone but the age of 17 my wife and I were married and pastoring a church to say that I lacked wisdom would be an understatement there are two things that saved me the first thing that saved me as a 17 year old pastor I discovered James chapter 1 and verse 5 And James 1 and 5 says that if anybody lacks wisdom, they can ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And at the age of 17 and passing a church, all I found and discovered that verse, and it's been one of my life verses ever since. I have asked God for wisdom nearly every single day of my life for the past 38 years. The second thing that saved me was, I started borrowing wisdom. Do you understand when you're 17 and pastoring a church, you don't have any wisdom of your own. And so early on, I started borrowing wisdom. As a young pastor, I, uh, I started hanging out with pastors older than me. And at the age of 17, that's not hard to do. Seeing as I was the youngest pastor in the state of Oklahoma at the time, and probably the second youngest pastor in the history of, o- of the Assemblies of God in Oklahoma. I think one of the Brankle brothers was 16, I think, or something, 15 maybe. Crazy, huh? And I started hanging out with pastors older than me. I took advantage of every single opportunity and every possible situation to borrow wisdom from older pastors by asking them questions and reading their books and going to their conferences. I have sat down with some of the greatest ministers in our movement. I discovered that when they were at a meeting that the district or general council brethren would take care of them for lunch and take care of these dignitaries for, for, for the evening meal, but they were left alone for breakfast. And so I started showing up at these guys' hotel, uh, hotels and meeting them or uh, talking to them uh, uh, at the meeting the night before and saying, I would like to buy your breakfast in the morning. Never met a pastor yet, turned down a free meal. <laughs> and I have sat down with some of the greatest leaders in the assemblies of God by simply buying their breakfast. And these pastors of these large, thriving mega churches—oh, uh, some were district officials, some were general council officials—and and I would sit down with them. I'd buy their breakfast, and while they're eating their breakfast, I was firing questions at them, and borrowing some of their wisdom and borrowing some of their knowledge. Listen to me, young people. Hear me, young parent. Hear me, newly, ma- newly married this morning. Have your young, cool friends. You, you need to have friends that are young and, and think like you and act like you and look like you. And You need those young friends that are cool. Because some of us older ones, we can't get there anymore. We don't even understand what it takes to get there. And frankly, some of us don't even really care anymore. <laughs> so you need young people. You need people your age and younger to be around you. to, You know, be your cool friends, but let me encourage you. Don't let that be your only acquaintances, not, not your only relationships, not your only friends, but find someone a little bit older than you. Make a friend out of someone a little older and wiser than you. So you can borrow some of their wisdom. Because you're cool. But wisdom is held by the elders. The learned. Those that have been around the block a few times. Those that have been where you're at. And lived to tell about it. My son became my youth pastor and worship leader when he was 19. And he worked for me for five years. And then my wife and I left the church and he became lead pastor of the church that I built. I'll never forget one day I was in his office and I had built the new church. and, And I built some beautiful executive offices. Beautiful. My office there was double the size it is here. Beautiful executive office. The one next to it that my son was in. Beautiful executive office. My son's 19. And his first office is this beautiful executive office. And I told him one day, I said, Son, I said, most of the preachers in the Assemblies of God will go their entire ministry and never have a beautiful office equal to this one. I said, Son, my first office was a closet And you're in this beautiful executive office at 19, your very first office. I said, son, where in the world are you going to go from here? Oh, he said, I'm right over there, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) And he pointed to my office. And sure enough, five years later, he was in that office and I was out on the street. Sometimes my son would get frustrated with me over how I would handle certain situations in the church. I can't believe you're letting them get away with thus and so, he'd say. You need to tell them blah, blah, blah. You need to bring them in and sit them down and discipline them. Or he'd say... Why can't we do this or that or something else that he wanted us to do in the church? Why can't we do that? I'd say, son, you need to learn to pick your battles. You don't fight every battle, you need to learn how to pick your battles. I said, not every battle is worth fighting. I said, and you need to count the cost before you start dragging people in here or strong-arming people or setting the record straight. You better count the cost, son. And I'd say, if we do that, it's only going to make matters worse. And I would say, son, only fight the battles you're willing to die for. If you ain't willing to die for it, it ain't worth the fight. fight. He couldn't understand it. To him, it was cut and dried. But later, when he became the lead pastor, he came to me later and apologized. And he said, Dad, I didn't understand. Oh, he said, now I understand where you were coming from. I've got a little different perspective now that I'm sitting in your chair. You see, you see, friend, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. It's easy to make decisions sitting up in the stand with a coke in one hand and a hot dog in the other. But when you become the coach, and all of a sudden, all the eyes are on you. All of a sudden, the pressure is on you. And the buck stops there. It's easy to make decisions when you're sitting in the second or third chair. It's totally different when you're sitting in first chair. Why do I need a friend? I need a friend to improve me. Friends can improve us by their example and by their experience. Let's look at the E in our acrostic. I need a friend this morning. I need a friend to encourage me. Galatians 6 and 2, Paul says to bear one another's burdens. And if we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. Americans have been labeled the walking wounded. We're told that one out of every two hospital beds today is taken up with a mentally ill person. The downturn in